and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, February 18th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi, everyone. And we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Rachel Kors of Stat News. So happy you can join us, Rachel. Thanks for having me, Julie. After the news, we will play my interview with Inam Sakina. She's a first-year medical student at Harvard and president of the new organization Future Doctors in Politics. We'll talk about how a growing number of medical students are interested in not just how public policy affects them directly, but how it affects their patients. But first this week, open enrollment redux. The ACA is back open for business, at least in those states that use healthcare.gov and some others, which together is most of the states. The Biden administration has promised to spend $50 million on promoting this open enrollment, although it is not yet clear how exactly they're planning to spend that money. Meanwhile, an estimated 4 million people are eligible for a no-premium bronze plan, and nearly 5 million more people are eligible for subsidies but not signed up. Yet it's still not clear how many of those people will actually take up this opportunity. How big a difference might actual outreach make? The Trump administration basically scrapped its outreach budget back in 2017. It'll be really interesting to see because the Trump administration pointed to enrollment numbers not cratering under them to argue that the outreach under the Obama administration was overly expensive and unnecessary. So this will be the real test. People do want insurance, but a lot of people, like you said, don't know about their options, don't know that they might be eligible for a free or almost free plan. And so it'll be interesting to see how real government outreach, because we have had outreach from outside groups and and nonprofits and states, um, but it'll be interesting to see how the federal government, once again, mobilizing how much of a difference that makes. I also think that you know, Congress has yet to pass this new bill that would make subsidies even bigger and more plans free or cheap for more people. If it had passed before now, would have probably been a key message in the outreach. And so now it's it's sort of in limbo. Um, but the enrollment period is, is going to be, you know, several weeks long. And so Through May. Yeah, several months long. And so I guess there is still time to get those extra subsidies passed. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty confusing. We've got, and that, this is my next question, we'll talk about this in a minute, about what could add on to this if Congress passes this bill that's shaping up. But in the meantime, you know, do, do people even know we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's no power in Texas and everybody's having an ice storm? I mean, I feel like open enrollment's gotten pretty buried in the, in the, the quote-unquote big news, at least even of the week, right? Definitely. And one of the things that I found a little bit curious is that we haven't yet seen the Biden administration allocate more funding to navigators. Navigators are nonprofits. Uh, They're made up of individuals who sit down with people who are eligible for health insurance on the marketplaces, and they really help them explore their best options and sort of tell them some of the trade-offs. They make sure they understand the deductibles. Navigator funding was slashed significantly under 
President Trump. And um, I haven't heard any news yet about whether they'll bring it back under Biden. I sort of expected that they would, um, but we haven't heard anything yet. I have talked to navigators who are concerned. You know, they got a contract to uh, help during the last open enrollment, but they don't have funding for this one. However, a lot of them are, are gearing up to help out anyway. As you mentioned, I, I do think it's also curious that this big change that we're about to see to the ACA, really one of the most significant that we've had in 10 years. It hasn't happened yet, and it's probably going to happen sometime toward, you know, the later part of open enrollment. So for some people, I mean, you hate to tell people to wait, uh, you know, to sign up for health insurance in the middle of the pandemic, but at the same time, what they're about to do with the ACA is make premium significantly less expensive for people. And so if you buy a plan now, the bill passes, you know, in a month, um, then you you might have a better option for coverage that is more affordable. Yeah, well, and let's talk about where we are on, I mean, the budget reconciliation bill, which is the, the COVID-19 relief bill, has this big ACA, you know, uh, package in it that would help people at both ends of the income scale. It would, it would cover a lot more people who have very low incomes and it would extend subsidies for people who have higher incomes. And, you know, I've seen sort of there's been sort of this backlash this week because the Congressional Budget Office said it wouldn't cover that many people. But then other people pointed out it's not the, the expansion is not intended to cover more people. It's intended to make it cheaper for the people who already are covered. Um, what, what is the status of this? Congress is obviously um, mostly out this week, right? The committees are finishing. Right. So the House is set to pass this next week, is aiming to pass this next week. And the Senate, um, I was talking to Senate offices saying that their committee leaders are trying to work with the House now as much as possible to get the bills in alignment so there's not a bunch of back and forth later with the different versions. They want to move this quickly. One pressing deadline is that a lot of aid programs expire on March 14th. And so they want to get this passed with some cushion, not, you know, the the second before uh, the clock strikes midnight. Um, Good luck but, with that. Well, I mean, we've all seen how Congress functions, so it probably will be the second before the clock strikes midnight. But they're aiming to pass it, you know, well in advance of March 14th. To, to be able to um, extend those aid programs before they expire. Um, so we'll see if that actually happens. There's obviously procedural hurdles with reconciliation in the Senate. There's things included in the House bill that the parliamentarian may say can't fly in the Senate. There's things that uh, there's political opposition to from some moderate Democrats in the Senate as well as Republicans. And because they are using reconciliation and using that to avoid a filibuster, they really need every single Democratic vote. And so if just one uh, Democratic senator is against something, it can't move forward. So it'll be a real minefield. You know, one of the weird quirks of reconciliation from back in the old days is that House committees that shared jurisdiction over things, particularly Medicare, used to put in basically conflicting provisions in their reconciliation packages. And the way the budget rules are written, the House would vote on them with the conflicting provisions in them. And then the Senate would pass its bill. And then in conference, they would sort out what they wanted. And obviously, I think they're trying, you know, in trying, as you said, Alice, to do this more quickly, I think they're trying very hard not to do something like that, even though under the rules of reconciliation, they can, but they can't fix it before it goes to the floor. They would have to actually be careful at committee to not do things that are conflicting. Otherwise, they're going to end up in a conference and they're never going to finish this by the middle of March. 
Anybody else hearing anything uh, provocative about uh, progress on this bill? I guess we're past the idea that Republicans might want to want to play and they might not need to use the budget reconciliation provisions, right? Right. And I think there was some talk earlier on that the Senate might bring up the House bill um, for a vote. But I think, you know, that would result in senators giving up a lot of the leverage that they have because of this narrow division. So at this point, it looks like, you know, the Senate is going to be engaged in their own process. You know, they certainly, you know, are having those conversations between the House and Senate and just to get as much agreement as they can. But I think there there is going to be this second House vote. And the House is narrowly divided, too, and crazy things can happen. So, um, yeah, I think things are moving fast. They're doing the best they can. Um, but there is going to be this, like, process in both, both the House and Senate. Well, meanwhile, while it's not clear how many people are going to sign up for the ACA either now or after this bill passes, assuming this bill passes, insurers are apparently getting more bullish on the Affordable Care Act. Aetna has announced that it will be rejoining the market for 2022. Uh, United Healthcare rejoined this past year. Might we actually see the Affordable Care Act eventually work the way it was designed, which we have basically not seen yet? Well, if the government keeps promising to um, put billions of, of dollars into the exchanges, you know, this isn't some benevolent decision that insurers are making. They're seeing the stimulus. They're seeing $34 billion alone going into the um, exchanges. Do I have that number right? Um, and so the big draw for customers is going to be, you know, what are premiums going to cost? Can I afford this health insurance? You know, of course, people want insurance, but they also want to be able to afford it. You know, there are counties in the U.S. right now where people are looking at paying half of their income on premiums, 20% of their income on premiums, just too much money, so they really can't afford it. So if Congress deals with that affordability problem long term, um, and right now in the stimulus, it would only last two years. But if that were to become more permanent, then yes, I do see it becoming far more competitive just because insurers can actually make money off of this thing. And insurers have been seeing record profits already because during the pandemic, people are paying for having insurance, but they're not using that insurance for regular health care as much as they normally would. And so insurers have been doing extremely well and are set to do even better with this higher subsidies and expectation of more enrollment. Although I'm guessing that when this bounces back, it's going to bounce back with a vengeance because of all the sort of delayed care that people at some point are going to need and insurers are going to be on the hook for. But that is for a future podcast. All right. So in Biden administration, news this week. Uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which apparently is getting a new administrator in the person of Chiquita brooks Lashore, who we said was a leading candidate a couple of weeks ago. Sorry, I digress. Uh, CMS is moving to rescind the guidance that allows states to impose work requirements for Medicaid beneficiaries. And it's notified the states that have work requirement waivers that it plans to rescind them. Apparently, it's a fairly involved process. It involves a hearing. Um, Alice, you've written about this a lot. How big a deal is this action? It was very expected. Um, and the work requirements were facing legal challenges anyways, and were blocked in most of the country. So it's both a big deal sort of to show the ideology of the new administration in stark contrast to the previous administration, in terms of what they see as the purpose of Medicaid being this safety net program. And not thinking of it as welfare, not thinking of it as something people would have to earn going through these bureaucratic hurdles and demonstrating their work hours. They they are saying, look, you know, you can't live off Medicaid. Medicaid is not welfare. We shouldn't penalize people and make them jump through all these hoops in order to get it, especially during a pandemic. And so it'll be interesting to now see how states that have moved in that direction now want to move 
we've already seen Arkansas trying to put forward an alternative plan. And so I think we're going to see these conservative states who want to put a conservative stamp on, especially the Obamacare expansion population, what they're going to do now that they can't impose these requirements. And also, I mean, this is more urgent than many other things because the Supreme Court has set March 29th for a hearing on the lawsuits a couple of the, the states filed over this policy. And I guess the Biden administration is worried that the conservative Supreme Court might say that, oh, it's A-OK for states to have work requirements, which doesn't mean that they couldn't still rescind them, but it means that a future administration could put them back. I'm assuming that they're doing this now because they're trying desperately to head this case off, right? Right. And trying to moot this. But like you said, it, it preserves the possibility that a future administration could come back. It was sort of the first trial of, of this policy. Um, that uh, I imagine is not going to go away. I mean, the the concept of work requirements for various forms of government assistance is decades and decades old. And so I, I don't see it going away as a conservative push anytime soon, no matter what the Supreme Court or the Biden administration do. Well, let us move on to COVID. The good news, of course, is that cases and deaths are both dropping pretty much everywhere, which is confusing. Uh, You know, places that have had really strict lockdowns and places that haven't had any lockdowns are seeing sort of this curve flatten and go down. Uh, The bad news, of course, is that the COVID variants are still out there and epidemiologists are worried that if we don't pick up the pace on vaccinating people, the variants could cause yet another spike. Um, Are we celebrating too soon here? There's certainly reason to be hopeful just because of the vaccines that we have. You know, they have proven to be effective against, you know, the most serious forms of illness and death, including in these variants. But I think my colleague, um, Helen Branswell, had a really great article out earlier this week where she, you know, talked about this perception of even just the, you know, efficacy data that we have and, you know, that there are going to be compounding factors of questions when people say, are thinking, you know, if they're offered one vaccine versus another, you know, is it better? Is it worse? Should I hold out and wait for this, like, quote unquote, better one? And I think there's this, um, you know, really interesting dynamic out there where, and her, her advice in talking to very smart people was take the vaccine that's offered to you, even if there are, you know, some variations within symptomatic, you know, illness that the real purpose and the thing that's going to slow this um, tragedy down is to, you know, stop deaths and stop the most serious illnesses and reduce stress on the healthcare system. So certainly it is very concerning. We may see those case numbers. And I think as um, White House officials have said in um, their briefings recently, really the vaccinating the most people as quickly as we can is the best way to fight these variants and to help slow the mutations, you know, if there's um, less chance for them to replicate. So that that is the perfect lead into my next question, which is while millions of people are still scrambling to get vaccines, we're starting to see the vaccine resistance and we knew was there. And by vaccine resistance, I mean people resistant to getting the vaccines. There are reports this week that 30 percent of military personnel who were offered the vaccine are declining. And a report just last night from ESPN saying that NBA players are resisting requests to be part of PSAs, urging others to get the vaccines because some of them, the players, aren't sure that they even want it. At some point, this is really going to threaten our ability to get to herd immunity, right? Right. We aren't talking about it as much now because right now we have the opposite problem. We have people clamoring for it and not able to get it because of 
a lack of supply because we're still in a shortage situation. And so you have people, you know, desperately refreshing pages to sign up for appointments. You have people camping out all night. Um, you know, you have people even trying to break the rules and get the vaccine when it's not even their turn yet. But yes, eventually, once everyone who does want the vaccine gets it, you are going to have the challenge of convincing the segment of the population that doesn't. Now, that population could shrink significantly between now and then, because between now and then, you'll have millions of people getting it and being fine and being protected. And I think seeing that and, you know, not just seeing that in the news, but seeing people you know get it and do well, I think will alleviate a lot of people's fears and sort of just naturally reduce that hesitancy by the time we get to the general public and those who are hesitant. But I think it's definitely worth thinking about now. It's worth talking to experts on public health messaging and creating messages that respond to different concerns because different populations have different concerns. Um, there's also a lot, my, my colleagues um, have been doing a lot of coverage of efforts to combat misinformation online, which is another huge area that uh, people should be paying way more attention to. Yeah, absolutely. So meanwhile, while, as Alice said, there are still too many arms chasing too few shots, even though the Biden administration says that daily inoculations are up to 1.7 million, uh, I know states and counties and others are trying their best to make prioritization decisions as fair as possible. But now we're seeing stories about caregivers of people who are eligible not being eligible themselves, which seems somewhat problematic. And people in obviously high risk groups are not able to get vaccines before people who are clearly at much lower risk. You know, in the pandemic, movie Contagion, which was done with the assistance of many public health experts, they just drew birth dates in a lottery and gave out the vaccines that way. When it was when your date came up, you got your shot. I'm starting to wonder if that might have been more efficient than what we're actually trying to do. Well, one of the things that we've seen, for example, Israel do is to create an age threshold, 65 and up, you can go ahead and get it. And, you know, one of the issues when you have such targeted groups is that you're going to have a certain percentage that doesn't want it. But when you have a broader array to choose from, then you can go ahead and get as many people who want the vaccine to go ahead and get it that are willing to do so, you know, quickly. Um, and then sort of allow others to go ahead and wait if that's what they want to do. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about equity and the need to be fair and the need to, you know, make sure that those who are getting the vaccine are the ones who would otherwise be at the greatest greatest risk of of death or serious, um, you know, disability as a result of the coronavirus. But when you do that, you know, there is also the risk that it'll go slower than you would really want it to. But, you know, having said that, 1.7 million, that's that's quite further than where we were. It's accelerating. I do think that it will continue to. And there's a lot of orders in for more vaccines and we're headed in the right direction. Yeah, I just I wonder if the frustration that we're breeding and boy, are we breeding a lot of frustration. We have KHN has a a new series on people's quest to get their shots um, is going to sort of make people sour. You know, we're, we're teaching people a really important lesson about public health. And I feel like every hurdle is making people a little, if not less trustful, a little more frustrated in sort of our ability to do some of these things. Well, it's also I mean, it kind of gets into bioethics or, or just ethics because, look, if you just do it strictly by age, and a lot of places, you know, started with 75 and older, you know, because people of color have a lower life expectancy, those higher age groups are disproportionately white people. And that's because of many factors, um, you know, legacies of racism and 
disparate treatment of people of color, etc. And so just doing it strictly by age leaves the 40-year-old grocery store worker who risks exposure every day later in line than, you know, somebody who is able to isolate safely at home and have all their groceries delivered and be safe. And so it is a real dilemma. And I think that the Biden administration is hoping that by ramping up supply, you can just do both. You don't have to choose. You can do the harder, slower work of sending mobile clinics into neighborhoods that don't have pharmacies and and seeking people out while at the same time quickly vaccinating all of the people that have the means to get to the site and the interest in doing so. And hence a lot of these, you know, big sort of super sites. Um, although the, the weather is not helping. But at the moment, by the time there's enough supply to do these super sites, one presumes it will be spring, um, or at least a little bit better than it is now. Um, so we've had a listener request to explain what's going on in New York with Governor Cuomo and the nursing home decision that he made way back in early 2020 and the mess that ensued from that. Rachel, you're actually following this, aren't you? I am indeed, yes. Um, and this controversy has been simmering for months and months, but it's kind of exploded um, in kind of the last couple of weeks. Quick overview, um, back um, in March of last year, um, New York was facing, you know, this overwhelmed hospitals. And we didn't know a whole lot about this virus. And at the time, Governor Cuomo issued a directive stating that uh, nursing homes couldn't discriminate against, you know, admitting or readmitting residents because of their infection status, I guess, with COVID-19. And that caused a lot of controversy and criticism. And eventually, you know, the policy was rolled back as we learned that seniors are more vulnerable to this virus, that congregate care settings, you know, are ripe for spread. And I think the Cuomo administration has defended this policy and doubled down and said that, you know, COVID-19 was already in their nursing homes. So maybe readmitting these infected patients, you know, maybe it wasn't the main cause of the spread. You know, there's a lot of controversy there. But I think... And it was terrible, but it, maybe it wasn't as terrible as it looked. <laughs> right. That, that was their defense of it. And in August, lawmakers and journalists and advocates started asking, you know, about how New York was reporting their nursing home deaths because they were only counting like, quote unquote nursing home deaths as individuals who actually died in nursing homes, not nursing home residents who died in hospitals. And, you know, that was different from what the rest of the country was doing. So the, when the Cuomo administration was saying, you know, our you know percentage of nursing home deaths compared to the total population is lower, you know, we're actually not doing that bad nationally. And I think lawmakers kind of picked up on that back in August and said, you know, hey, this isn't an apples to apples comparison. Where's the data? And an attorney general report from the state of New York at the end of January revealed that, you know, actually they had been drastically under undercounting these deaths. The numbers were much higher than they were kind of portraying. And that I think that set off a lot of questions. And then the New York Post obtained this really explosive tape of one of Governor Cuomo's top aides admitting that they had kind of slow walked the release of this data because they were worried about political retribution from the Trump administration, um, the political ramifications. So and then there's just a lot of controversy. And Trump, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Trump had threatened political retribution I mean, against was New York DOJ on other inquiry. things. Yeah. Yes, I mean, yes. There, there was certainly a legit reason for them to be worried. Yeah, um, there was definitely a tension there. So I think there are questions coming up about the ethics. Um, you know, was there a quote unquote cover up of this data to try and make them look better? Part of it was that Governor Cuomo had kind of presented himself as a foil to President Trump um, in his approach to the pandemic and transparency with data and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's it's really consumed um, Albany at this point. Um, he's facing, you know, 
more scrutiny, you know, more disagreements with state lawmakers are kind of coming out. So um, I think it's it's a real problem and a real ethical public health issue as well if political considerations are, you know, influencing decisions to release data um, that could have real consequences for people's health. I think it's helping people appreciate, I mean, how hard it is to be a leader in a case where people really don't know exactly what's happening. I mean, this has just been difficult for for everyone, Republicans and Democrats, and even those who are following the science because the science keeps changing. All right. Well, that is as much time as we have for the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Inam Sakina of Future Doctors in Politics, and then we will be back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Enam Sakina, a first-year medical student at Harvard and president of the brand-new organization Future Doctors in Politics. Enam, welcome to What the Health. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we already have lots of doctors in politics, both Democrats and Republicans. Why do medical students interested in politics need another new organization? Great question, Julie. Um, So Future Doctors in Politics launched with this mission of working to empower future doctors now while they're in medical school, while they're making really critical decisions about their future trajectories, really empowering them now with the mindset and skill set they need to drive political and policy action in the future. And so our vision is to build and organize national movement of physicians who are committed to pooling their professional and financial resources, their social networks, their unique expertise, converting all of that into concrete political capital, and then ultimately harnessing that political capital to ensure our country's politics and policies are decided with patients in mind. And so you mentioned that there are physicians in public office. Uh, The question is, what is driving those physicians in how they are legislating and how they are making critical policy decisions. Our organization is starting with this critical fundamental commitment that what will drive us in the political arena are the stories and the priorities of our patients. It's their interests and their needs that we have in mind. So I've done a lot of work as a journalist on programs that try to teach medical students and residents uh, more about health policy, how the policy process works, largely in an effort to help them better care for their patients. Are you trying to influence medical education or the actual policy process or both? Both. Our goal is to use the venue of medical education to introduce students to these critical skills that they need to impact the broader policy, political structure and system. And so our theory of change unfolds in in three pillars. And so we start with changing minds. Um, We know that in medical school, we spend a lot of time learning about which pills to prescribe for our patients, but not a lot of time thinking about the bills and laws that actually end up impacting their health the most. And so Our organization is here to bridge that gap and provide quality virtual, at this point in time, educational programming uh, that really can help build that basic policy literacy. So medical students are understanding how these complex policy ideas that for them right now seem so messy and so abstract have a very tangible, concrete implication for that patient that they're seeing in an exam room or their future livelihood as, as physicians. Um, We're also trying to pull back the curtain on the political process. Just because you understand a policy doesn't mean you fully grasp the political process that's needed to get to that public policy, right? And so there are so many various interests and dynamics that 
impact, what ideas even get to be heard on the floors of state legislatures and Congress, and then what ideas ultimately get to become law. And so if we want to have an impact in the policy and political arena, we have to understand how those interests work and then ultimately be able to influence those interests. Um, we're also trying to center physician advocates as, as role models. Um, there are physician advocates, physician legislators who are practicing medicine and simultaneously driving policy change. And they're using their experiences treating patients to inform how they approach public policy. But oftentimes, many of our peers are just not aware of the fact that there is this path available to them. And so our organization being able to showcase the stories and the journeys of these individuals um, gives students an opportunity to follow in their footsteps. Obviously, doctors have influenced the policy process for decades. Just look at the history of the American Medical Association. How is what you're trying to do different here? So historically, the physician lobby has existed in the political space and has wielded enormous power in the public policy discourse. A lot of that lobbying work has been to primarily advance the interests of physicians um, and sometimes advance the interests of physicians at the expense of the needs of our patients. So we saw that with the universal healthcare proposals that were made during the Truman era, for example, organized physician-led opposition ultimately slammed the door shut on, on that really promising policy idea and withheld the possibility of millions of Americans being able to access basic health care. Uh, more recently, there was the appointment of someone who campaigned for dismantling Obamacare to serve as Secretary of the Health and Human Services. That was supported by several organized physician lobbies. And so what we are proposing is, is different from that. What we are proposing is that we believe that it's important to organize the next generation of physicians to be clear-eyed about what our policy goals are. We are organizing to impact policy by electing patient-centric, science-driven, equity-minded policymakers in every level of government who are going to put people and patients above profit, who are going to make the difficult decisions to reform the failing systems that continue to endanger the health of our populations. Do you feel like this generation of medical students has a sort of different view? I mean, when I was in college, people wanted to go to medical school to get rich. I mean, that was then they would say that that was sort of, you know, it it was prestigious and you could make a lot of money and you could, you know, do good. How is that different from today's medical students? Yeah, I would venture to say that the vast majority of students, when they don that white coat for the first time, they are taking a sacred oath to serve their patients. And I believe that when we start out in medicine, we take that oath very seriously. And so I think part of it too is that as medical students of this generation, particularly first year medical students, we are taking that oath in the midst of a pandemic. Our white coat ceremony was actually virtual. So we took that oath through a Zoom screen. And we're taking this oath in the midst of a pandemic where thousands and thousands of Americans have needlessly died because our political leaders failed, where our fellow health workers are having to risk their lives to save lives, and where crushing health inequities, particularly racial inequities, are being intensely exacerbated and our patients of color are being made to suffer the most again and again. Um, so there is something different and distinct about the timing of when we are entering 
this workforce and how we are entering this workforce. And I think it raises for us really important questions about what our responsibilities are to our patients and to broader society. I think what it tells us is that we can't afford to stay on the sidelines anymore, and we can't afford to only speak up when it affects our paycheck. We have a moral and professional duty to be on the side of our patients, even if that means taking our voices all the way to the halls of government. So you personally have a, a quite a varied background, including experience at CDC and FDA and in state government. Um, a lot of doctors, you know, have gotten involved in government only for the purpose of getting government out of health care. How does your personal experience affect your views as a future practitioner? Yeah, I, I have been fortunate enough to have experiences in many different sectors. And so I have spent some time in the public sector, as you mentioned, working at the CDC and the FDA uh, in state government as well. I've also spent some time working in the academic sector, uh, working on a variety of equity, diversity, inclusion initiatives, policy initiatives in higher education. And then I've also done academic research in, in infant mortality and, and racial inequities in infant mortality. And so through that multifaceted lens that I've been able to cultivate, I think where I land is that structural and systemic problems require structural systemic solutions. And so when we think about this reality that we live in, where patients are having to choose between putting food on the table and buying their prescription medication, or accessing insurance or paying for rent. 27 million Americans are, are still uninsured. Thousands of Americans are just one medical catastrophe away from bankruptcy. When I look at those problems, given this varied experience that I've had, I don't think those problems are going to be solved by my writing another prescription. I think those problems are going to require comprehensive, sustained, persistent policy action. And so what I think physicians bring to the table, though, in that policy discourse is this personal and intimate experience seeing the human cost of our policy failures. And so physicians don't have the luxury of distance from these policy problems. We are seeing patients every day who are coming with symptoms and stories that really manifest the urgency of why we need policy action now. And so I think that perspective injected into the policy discourse that I have spent some amount of time in can really change the dynamics of how we approach public policy and politics in the future. So people are interested, how can they get more information about your organization? So uh, we'd love for folks to visit us at futuredoctorsinpolitics.org. It's futuredoctorsinpolitics.org. We are building a national movement and we welcome a diverse set of voices and experiences and perspectives as we build this movement for the future. We also have a national launch event coming up very soon. Uh, it is scheduled for Thursday, February 18th, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern, where we'll be featuring two physician state senators who have made it their mission to forge this intersection between practicing medicine and driving policy change. So they are physicians who are currently serving on the front lines of the COVID response, treating patients and simultaneously legislating on behalf of their constituencies. And so if that doesn't make the case for why we need physicians to be involved in this work, I don't know what does. Um, we'd love for folks to join in on the conversation. Um, again, Thursday, February 18th, uh, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you'd like to register, it's tinyurl.com slash updiplaunch. Inam Sakina, thank you for joining us and good luck. Thank you so much. It was wonderful being here.
Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the link to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Kim, why don't you go first this week? You have an interesting story. <laughs> I know. I'm sure many of our listeners, because this has kind of exploded, have watched the uh, New York Times documentary on Hulu, uh, called Framing Britney Spears. Um, First of all, the film does a really excellent job um, dissecting how we as a society and media uh, treat women in entertainment. But the main topic that I wanted to bring up um, that is kind of the crux of the documentary as well is um, that Britney Spears is under a conservatorship of her father. That means it's a legal arrangement where she can't really make her own decisions, whether it's about uh, where she lives, you know, what job she's going to take on and how she can spend her money. And so I ended up picking up a story that is called The Darker Story Just Outside the Lens of Framing Britney Spears. It's from The New Republic and it's by Sarah Letterman and it really explores the issue of conservatorship. You know, we know about Britney Spears because she's famous, but this is something that happens to a lot of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And the article does a really good job looking at whether you know, the fact that we don't really have proper oversight over the system and then really questioning whether it's something that should be happening, whether we should be taking civil rights away from people just because of their disability. So um, highly recommend that it has really important context to um, the documentary. Okay, Rachel. I'm kind of doing a double header here. So um, the first story is called As Drug Prices Keep Rising, State Lawmakers Propose Tough New Bills to Curb Them by Harris Meyer for Kaiser Health News. Um, And then the second is called um, States Still Can't Import Drugs from Canada. Now many are seeking to import Canadian prices um, by Lev Basher at STAT. And um, just the idea is that, um, you know, as we're having this federal conversation about drug pricing policy, potentially paying for other policy priorities, you know, there are these creative policies, uh, policies coming up at the state level, you know, even though, you know, pharmaceutical companies uh, you know, produce these heroic vaccines um, really quickly. And, the, you know, as state budgets, some state budgets, you know, face issues. I think there'll be an interesting um, dynamic to watch to see, you know, whether these policies actually advance um, when, you know, the budget's involved as well. Alice. I have a story from our own Joanne Kennan. It's part of a new series that we're doing at Politico called Recovery Lab, deep dives into policy issues and solutions. And this is called How COVID-19 Can Make Americans Healthier. It's about how the pandemic has really exposed a lot of weaknesses in our public health system, chronic underfunding, lack of trust, a focus more on treating the sick than prevention. And experts hope that the pandemic provides an opportunity to make some of the big reforms they've been clamoring for for a very long time. Excellent. Well, my story is actually by our new podcast panelist, Rachel, from Stat News, and it's called Hospitals COVID-19 Heroics Have Them Poised for Power in the New Washington. And it's a very good look at the very complicated lobbying by the hospital industry, which is probably the most powerful health-related lobbying group, if only because hospitals are among the largest employers in virtually every congressional district. On the one hand, hospitals seem to be emerging from COVID with very high population from the public and from elected officials, and they did very much get their way in the surprise billing legislation that passed in December. Also in their favor is that very powerful people, including new Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richie Neal of Boston, are longtime backers of hospitals in general and teaching hospitals in particular. On the other hand, there's going to be a renewed focus, as, as uh, we were just talking about, uh, on the cost of Medicare at some point, and HHS Secretary-designate Javier Becerra 
as Attorney General of California, was a crusader against what he saw as price gouging hospitals. Just go Google Sutter. So watching this play out over the next two years is going to be very interesting, and the story is a really good curtain raiser for it. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at jrobner. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Kim. At Leonard KL. Rachel. At Rachel Kors. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.